Everyone ready for Christmas next week? I'm assuming that's where some people are tonight. We're continuing in John's Gospel, John chapter 10. And we're actually concluding Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees. Remember, John is trying to bring this clarity about what God is doing. And he's doing that through Christ as he is now fulfilling the law and showing the heart of God as it is in opposition with the religious leaders of that time. How that they were following the letter of the law, but they weren't following the heart of God. And so at this in this exchange that we've seen, Jesus has time and time again done things purposefully, healed on the Sabbath. It's not that he couldn't heal on a Monday or a Tuesday. He chose to heal on the Sabbath because he was challenging the, the thought at that time. And he did that on purpose to tell us something, that God cares more about people than he does about the religious rules and settings, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so we're going to be picking up Chapter 10, verse 22, and let's pray before we get started. Father, as once again we pause and take time to not only read, but to allow these words to minister to us, to speak to us, to reveal to us your heart and the things that are of importance to you. Lord, we ask that what is important to you would also be important to us. And so may our time with you be rich. May we leave here changed because indeed we've spent time with you. And we thank you for an opportunity again to listen to you and to hear you speak. And we do ask you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's start at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, the Jews The Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? 
Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. As the scene starts out, it's the festival of dedication. We would know this as Hanukkah. This is also the festival of lights that they've celebrated before. And this is an important occasion for the Jewish people. It had a few meanings, but one, the dedication was when they had to rededicate the temple because the temple was desecrated by Antiochus. I don't know his name, the Greek guy, Antiochus Epiphany, um, where he wanted to get the Jews to leave their traditions and start following the, the Grecian ways, the Greek beliefs, mythology. The Jewish people were stubborn, would not do that, and so he ransacked them. He did all kinds of atrocious things, and the paramount of that, I mean, he would turn their temples and their place, their synagogues into brothels, but then he actually took a pig, which was an unclean animal, and sacrificed it on the altar and did that to their gods, just trying to desecrate the Jewish people to make them see that their belief was foolish and to destroy their belief. It didn't work. And afterwards, there was an uprising. The Jewish people came and took the temple back, and there was a cleansing of the temple. And that's part of this temple of dedication as part of that festival of lights that we know as Hanukkah, which takes place, you know, in the winter. Not too long ago, it was Hanukkah, uh, just after Thanksgiving. And so that's an important time for the Jewish people. And it's at this time that Jesus is there in the temple, and he's in Solomon's colonnade, which is the outer portion of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to go to. And we've talked about that quite a bit, how God had made a place specifically for the Gentiles. And so again, John is painting this picture. Here is Jesus in the outer court as the rabbis used to wander outside the outer court and all their followers would come along and listen to them. And so they're following Jesus and he's going around in this colonnade. And finally they ask him, okay, if you're really the Messiah, tell us, keep, don't keep us in suspense. Let us know. Now, why do you think they're saying that? Uh, didn't he tell that to some of them? What do you guys think? I'm hoping he'll change his mind. Well, I, I think some really want to know. And I think there are, again, some who are trying to trap him. It's interesting because Jesus did proclaim himself as a Messiah to the Samaritan woman, to the man who was blind. Okay, and so he, we know, gave this declaration that was very clear to these two individuals. And it's interesting that it was to these individuals, not to the religious leaders. But then there's going to be this dialogue about the works the things that he does. And that's going to be an important part because Jesus said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. 
In other words, I, I said these things, and again, he said it in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. He said it in chapter 9 to the man who was blind. But more importantly, the works that I do in my Father's name, they're the ones that testify about me. The things that I'm doing are specifically connected to who I am. And they knew this. In Isaiah chapter 35, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like the heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. This was all the prelude. This is the Messiah. This is what he is going to do. And these aren't things that just anyone's doing. Yeah, I remember Joe. Yeah, he was opening the eyes of the blind last week, but now it's Jesus this week. No one was doing this. All of a sudden, Jesus comes and starts doing these things, and that's why there is this discussion. No man has ever done the works that this man does. Surely God is with him. Remember the dialogue with the blind man. Whether, you know, he's of God or not, I don't know, but he opened my eyes. Why is that so important? Because Isaiah said that was going to be what the Messiah did. And so Jesus is purposely telling them, look at the works. They're telling you something. Whatever you're thinking about me, think about what I'm doing. Because the works that I'm doing, they testify about me. They are telling you who I am. That's still true for us. The things we do tell people who we are. And it's so important that we recognize that because what we say means something, but what we do means a whole lot more. And so if we're going to take the name of Christ, call ourselves his, then the works that we do should be in line with the things that he would do. And he continues, he says, the works I do in my father's name, they testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them, this is three things that he gives to his sheep. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so he's giving this kind of understanding about his sheep. But it's an interesting verse when he says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. Does this mean that they can never be his sheep? Okay, what does he mean when he says you are not my sheep? And why aren't they his sheep? It says there, why aren't they the sheep? Verse 26. Because you do not believe. They don't believe, so you're not my sheep. It's real important that we understand that Jesus isn't saying God hasn't chosen you, so you're not my sheep. Because later on, he's going to appeal to them, if you don't believe me, believe the works that you see. So he's still trying to include them. And it's real important that we don't start thinking of God as excluding, you're not my sheep, so there. Because he's not saying you will never be. He's saying you're not my sheep because you don't believe. If you were my sheep, 
You would hear my voice. It would make sense to you. But there's something that is stopping them. And we know it's their pride. We know it's the power that they had. That's what we've seen throughout the dialogue. And so as he tells them, you don't understand, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. You're not my sheep because you do not believe. They go hand in hand here. My sheep listen to my voice. Those who are able to discern what I am saying, those are my sheep. If you listen, then you can hear and then you can be one of the sheep. If you listen to my voice, if you hear what I'm saying, And he knows those that are following him. He gives them eternal life. That is the life of God. That's what he means by eternal life. Again, don't think of duration. Don't think of eternal life as life that goes on and on and on and on and on. It's life. It's forever, but it happens now. So it's not like when you die, you get this other life. It's no, you get the life of God now. They have eternal life. It's a different quality of life. And it's important because if we think of it in this term of, you know, a latitude of just this going on, then, well, maybe you can stop it. But eternal life is something that just encompasses you. It's not just, a, you know, kind of a plane that keeps on going. And so they have eternal life. They shall never perish. And that is the life of God won't be extinguished from them. And... He goes on, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. It doesn't mean that their life doesn't have sorrow, suffering, or even the physical death, but a life that is connected to God will not be disintegrated. It will not be extinguished. So, any questions about that? Boy, I sure got a lot of questions. You guys don't have... Yes. Any other questions or thoughts on just this, no one can take them out of my hand? Anyone want to... <laughs> What's that? You, you know, we we get very hung up on this kind of time and how time works and we see it in a, a plane of you know traveling from point a to point b and, and god kind of sees the whole thing you know god doesn't look at this as okay this is monday and this is friday he kind of sees the whole thing planed out jesus talks about abiding in the vine He talks about staying connected to God and it being an important thing. But he also talks about God giving a quality of life and and changing the the people that we are. You know, that metamorphosis, being born anew, being born from above, um, being a new creation. And so then you have to think, okay, if you're made a new creation, do you then become an old creation again, and then do you become another new creation? And if God gives us eternal life, do you have this life of God, and then it's no longer eternal life, and then you can come back to eternal life? Or is it entering into the life of God changes who we are? We think it has to happen in a moment, but maybe it happens throughout a lifetime. Maybe it's something that happens 
just like you know people develop and grow you 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 don't see the moment and say okay this is it this is when that person you know became forever a christian eternal life maybe it's something that happens in a duration of time that it's a work of God that develops, that, that that plant that is put into the ground, the seed that is put into the ground is a plant, but you don't see the fruit until it grows and then produces that fruit. And so maybe God is seeing the change happening, but the change is also something that takes place throughout our lives. For that fruit to come, we need to abide, we need to stay connected. It won't happen. Are you really a believer or not? I'm not the one who makes the decision. Those who remain, he says, you know, those who I've called will remain. Um, and, and so then you look at like even Judas. Well, was Judas, you know, did he have eternal? He was with Jesus. He did miracles. He did all these things. What about him? What about people like him? I know a guy who used to go and was a missionary, but now, you know, he's doing this and he's doing this. Is he connected to God? I don't know. Some people are sheep that fall into the mud and God cleans them back. Some people are prodigal sons that come back. Some people are pigs and they get cleaned up and then they go back to where they want to live. You know what I'm saying? The sheep doesn't belong in the mud and comes out of it. The pig wants to live in the mud and God knows the heart and the condition. But I believe that when God gives his life, it is something that transforms who we are. It changes our being. It makes us new creations. It changes our essence. And even though we are frail and are faulty, it something those things don't change what God has created in us. How many of you as followers of Christ have not had failures, lapses in your life. Did you stop being a Christian? Did you did the life of God be extinguished? Well, we worry about it. Oh no, do I have that? And it's good to worry because your works declare who you are. But more importantly is what where are you going from there? Are you going to stay in the mud or are you going to get out of the mud? Are you going to abide or are you going to be cut off and thrown away cuz you're no good for anything? And so instead of looking at a time, because then we say, oh, yeah, I, I'm I'm forever, you know, I'm once saved, always saved. I can point to a date where I said this prayer. Well, I don't know what the prayer meant. You probably don't even know what the prayer meant. When I said a prayer, I didn't know what I was doing. I think God knew what was going on, and I think he used it to change my life. But we probably don't know fully what was taking place. And so Jesus is giving us a promise, and we need to be able to hold on to this promise. He wants there to be security that those who belong to him will stay with him. Now, can you leave? Well, maybe you can leave, but maybe then you were never really with him. Because those who were of us remained. If they weren't, they wouldn't have left. Paul tells us. And so there seems to be a dynamic where the free will is there, but some people are seeds that fall on the rocky thorns and the cares and things of life come up and they're like, yeah, I'd rather have this than that. And that might show their true character where they were from the beginning. We don't know the heart of people. Okay. We, we don't know what it says. What was that? <laughs> 
we don't know what's going on in a person's heart, but Jesus wants us to have a confidence in him. And I think it's important that we recognize that, that if we hear his voice and we follow him, then we have the life of God. We will not perish, and no one's going to snatch us from his hand. And we can have that confidence. And it's important that we have that confidence. Our confidence isn't in how good we live. Our confidence is in how good Jesus lived. Our confidence is in the one who gives us this life. And and that's where he's taking this. He says, no one can snatch them from my hand. And then he goes on and he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So whose hand are you being snatched from? Jesus or his father's? And then he says, I and the father are one. It's the same. God has given them to me. Me and the father are one. You can't snatch them out of our hands. And so Jesus is bringing us the security that God is with him, Christ, and that God is using Christ to bring us to him. Now think about it. When he says, I am, and the Father are one. What does he mean? What do you think that means? He's saying that he's God. Okay. Think about this in John chapter 17. In fact, turn to John 17. In John 17, we see Jesus has what we call his prayer, kind of the real Lord's Prayer. And he says some things in this prayer that are interesting about us. Let me try and find out some of the verses here. Um, I thought it was verse 11, but maybe it wasn't. Hold on a second. I had it written down and then I didn't copy, so I'll have to get through here. One of the things that he says, starting in verse, um, forgive me, where am I, where am I? Verse 20, where he says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me, though they're through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Same idea here. He says earlier, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And, And so what does it mean to be one? Because Jesus and the Father are one, what are they one in? They are one in purpose. They are one in intent. Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be of the same purpose and the same intent. doesn't mean that we're God. It means that we are of the same purpose. And when Jesus says, my and my father are one, this is his declaration that we are of the same purpose. We are of the same intent. And here, again, it's the essence. The bond of unity is really love. 
the proof of love is obedience. Christians are one with each other when they are bound by love and they obey the words of Christ. Jesus is one with God because as no one else ever did, he obeyed and loved the Father completely. And his unity with God is a unity of perfect love and of perfect obedience. And so when he say, I said, I and the Father are one, he meant that everything that I am doing is the intention that the Father had for us to do. But he's taking it and he's doing it, taking it very personal, and that's why they picked up stones because they said that's blasphemy. You're saying that your intention is the exact same as God. And so it's important to understand that that's the purpose that's taking place here. We know that Jesus is God because we've seen it. The great I am that we saw in chapter 8. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. And so we know that he is God. But here he is talking specifically about purpose and intention. And it's important to see that because that's the conversation that is taking place with these Jewish leaders. Again, when they, verse 31, they picked up stones to stone him. And it literally means they were going to fetch stones to start hurling at him. They were starting, you know, he said this and they started going to pick up stones. Yes, you have a question? Yeah, they didn't, I don't, they didn't have an understanding or it wasn't in their understanding that the Messiah would be God manifested in the flesh. He would be a man like Moses come, a prophet, to declare the things of God. Okay, and here God is showing up as a man and in a way that they weren't expecting. Remember, Jesus wouldn't surrender himself because their idea of the Messiah wasn't the real idea. Okay, their idea of Messiah was a conqueror, was a man who was going to come and lead the people like Moses. Wouldn't, it was they didn't think of it as being God. It wasn't in their frame of thinking, at least in these people's mind. That was in the scripture's intent, but it wasn't their understanding, which is why they had a hard time with it as well. And so Jesus would not, that's why Jesus spoke in parables. That's why Jesus would not publicly announce himself, I am the Messiah to all these people, because he knew if he said that, they would interpret it in their mindset and not in God's. And so they would go on and they would try to make him king. They would try and use him so that they could conquer Rome. And that wasn't the intention. They didn't see the Messiah's coming to suffer. And the, the Messiah to have to suffer and take away the sin had to be sinless. To be sinless, it had to be of the virgin birth, had to be God. Okay, and so they didn't fully understand that. They didn't know how bad the human condition really was. They saw themselves as, well, we're of you know, Abraham, and so God has promised us, and we'll just keep on sacrificing and doing the things that we thought we were supposed to do. And God says, no, I have a different plan. I'm going to abolish that. I will provide myself the sacrifice, as I gave a, a foreshadow of all those times before, and now it's coming to fulfillment, but they couldn't see it. And so if Jesus said, well, yes, I'm the Messiah, they would say, oh, you're this. And he says, no, I'm not that. And that's why he did things the way he did them is because they didn't see what the Messiah was supposed to be. Okay, And so as he comes up and they're getting ready to pick up stones, I mean, imagine the, the tension in this scene. 
Okay, he says this and all of a sudden they're going around to pick up rocks, getting ready to hurl them at him. Okay, and then Jesus like quickly jumps in and he says, he said to them, I've shown you many good works. There's that idea again from the father. For which of these do you stone me? Good. What were the good works? I healed the sick. I fed those who were hungry. I am comforting those in sorrow. I've done these things. For which of these things are you going to stone me? And again, he's pointing them to the things that he's doing because he wants them to see who he is. He's not being antagonistic against the Pharisees. He's trying to get them to understand I've done all these things for which one of you stone me? And they said, we are not stoning you for any good work. We're not going to stone you for those things. You would make, you think they would at least think about those things. Okay, you're not stoning me for those things, but are you even thinking about those things? They're saying, they're, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And here's where we have the problem. You see, their minds could not contain what God was doing. They didn't have room in their thoughts for the work that God was doing. And so they excluded God because he didn't fit in their framework. How many people do that still? God doesn't fit into the way I'm thinking, and so I exclude God because my mind can't be wrapped around that. It's just beyond my idea of what God does and what God will do. And so they couldn't think about that. And so Jesus now, this is an amazing thing he's about to do, and it's hard for us to grasp in the way we think compared to the way they who studied the law thought, because they said, we're not stoning you for the works. But blasphemy, you as a man, make yourself out to be God. And so Jesus answers that specifically to them. You, a man, make yourself to be God. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said that you are gods? That's found in Psalm 82. 82 verse 6, it says, it's warning to the unjust judges to cease from unjust ways and to, to defend the poor and innocent. These judges were acting on behalf of God. And he said, didn't your own law say that you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart? And so if the scriptures say that they are gods, in other words, they are being oracles of God, they are being used for God. And there's a few places that this happens where God says they're being set aside to do the work of God. In Exodus 21, it says, this his master shall bring him into the judges. But in the Hebrew, the word that's translated judges is actually the word Elohim, the same word that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so here there's this word God, which means gods. The same form of expression is used in Exodus 22.9, 22.28. Even scripture said of men who were specifically commissioned for this task by God that they were acting as gods, a little g, but acting in that role of gods. And so Jesus says, if the scripture can talk about these judges 
in this way, why should I not speak that way about myself? And so here again, we see you being a man, make yourself out to be God. I and the Father are one. All these things are talking about the role that Jesus is taking, the things that he is doing. And he's saying, you know that this is how it speaks in your law. If the scriptures are this way, you can't violate the scripture, right? And they're like, well, no, the scriptures mean everything to us. Well, your scriptures call these men gods. How much more so, if I really am the Messiah, do I have the right to be called this? And what he's trying to do is break down their argument that says, you can't, that's blasphemy. You can't do that. And he goes, no, I can, and I can even do more because of who I am but you don't see it, even though it's there in your own scriptures. What about the one whom the Father has set apart? That word set apart is an important, it's hagios. The word always has the idea of rendering a person or a place or a thing different from others, other places, other things, like the Sabbath. The Sabbath is set apart, it's holy, In Exodus 20, the altar of the Lord is holy. It's set apart specifically for a purpose. The priests are holy. They're set apart for a specific thing. The prophet is holy. When Jesus said that God had consecrated him, set him apart, made him holy, he meant that he had set him apart from every other man because he had given him a specific task to do. And so, They're wanting to know, if you're the Messiah, tell us, and he is. I am set apart for a specific task. The problem is, it's not the task you think I'm set apart for. And so they would not hear his voice because they didn't believe in him. If they would have known, you're the man, you are the Messiah, you're the man, you're the man. If they would have known that, they could have heard. But it wouldn't fit in their thinking. Nope, you can't be that. You can't be that. And so they would go to these other places. No, you're blaspheming. He says, no, I'm not. Think about what your scriptures say. I'm more. And it provided room for this. And so he is really trying to get them to see. And his argument is amazing. It's just flawless. Of course, they're trying to argue at him and he's using their own words, their own law to prove his case. But they still could not see it. And he says, you know, I've set a part for this very, his own, for his, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. You see, it was possible for the scriptures to speak of judges as gods because they were commissioned by God to bring his truth and justice to this world. Now, Jesus has been set apart for a specific task. He has been dispatched into the world by God. How can you object if he calls himself the son of God? He's only doing what the scripture does. This is one of those biblical arguments. Um, The force, it's just... Difficult for us to grasp and feel, but to the Jewish rabbi, it would have been just devastating. 
it would have just disarmed. It would have probably made them angry. Have you ever been in an argument and then someone just destroys your argument? Usually your first reaction is get mad because my argument's gone. I've got no logic. I'll just get angry because that's all I can do. Ah, I'll throw things. Ah, that's stupid. Why is it stupid? Because it makes me wrong, you know? I mean, and so really that's what's going to happen. He just devastated them. But listen to what he says in verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Even though you can't wrap your mind around this because your view of the Messiah just wasn't this way. Your idea didn't fit into this realm. It it just, I don't believe this. I can't believe this. Then believe the works. And, And so Jesus is still holding out his hand to them. In effect, he's saying, "Accept if you don't accept my words, accept the deeds that I'm doing. If you're having a hard time understanding me, at least believe the things that I am doing. You know, a word is something about something we can argue with, but a deed is something that is beyond argument. It's there. It's something that you can tangibly take hold of. And so if you can't get your mind around what I am and who the Messiah is, then get your mind around the things that I'm doing because that will tell you who I am. And again, he's trying to include them. He's trying to bring them in. He's not pushing them away. He's not saying, I hate you, religious leaders. He's saying, can you see this? Verse, well, do not believe the works that I, you may know. Well, let's take 38 again. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's really trying to get them to understand who he is. But I'm not the Messiah you think the Messiah should be. I'm the Messiah who God has set apart to do a task. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, the emotion of this incident is tense. They're trying to kill him. And then Jesus' intensity of trying to open their eyes just is unbelievable. And he goes to them at a place that they should most understand. And he appeals to them in the best way that he can. And they still try to seize him. And he escapes their grasp. He leaves. There's probably a huge crowd around there. And as they're freaking out, getting angry, because you just destroyed our argument. I don't care. I'm going to kill you. And they're trying to grasp him, imprison him. He just escapes through there. What would be going on in your mind if you had this incredible truth, you presented it as clearly as you can and the people were still not going to believe you and in fact hostile to you. How would that make you feel? Wouldn't that be just the most frustrating thing? I mean, there's been situations in my life, mostly with my children, where I'm trying to get them to understand something and they won't understand it and I see the 
the problems that it's causing in their lives, but they don't see it. Or maybe it's even in a person I know and in a way that they're living and I'm trying to tell them, don't you see that this is connected to this? If you get rid of what you're doing here, you will stop the problems you're having here. And then they get mad at you. Yeah, quit judging me. I hate you. And you just you leave and you're frustrated because you wanted to help. You wanted them to see, but they just wouldn't see. Do you think Jesus felt those things? Lola. In Isaiah chapter 9, where he says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. Um, there's other passages where it says, you know, uh, thy throne, O God. Um, it talks about the Messiah taking that role of just being God will provide these things himself. Um not blatantly. I mean, the whole, whenever you're talking prophetically, things aren't always blatant. You know, where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, you know, you are not the least. Well, it wasn't like, here's where the Messiah is going to be born, Bethlehem, but they kind of knew. It, it didn't fit their thinking, Alex. Yeah, there's a lot of little glimpses where God talks about himself coming into there, even uh, with uh, Isaac and Abraham, where God will provide himself the lamb. Um, the way that's phrased, it's like God will provide himself as the lamb. Um, trying to think of other places. There are other little things that are hints that they should see those things and not be unaware of those things happening. And you see, Jesus is revealing who the Messiah is. Even though they might not fully understand, his argument here is, okay, you can't get your mind around this. Get your mind around what I'm doing because this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. And if you can get your mind around that, then you'll be able to follow the other things and see those things. And then the scriptures start to become illuminated based on what you're seeing here. As you look at the Old Testament, we look at it through the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament gives us clarity to what God was saying because it's always easier to see a fulfillment when it's happened. You know, and so they're seeing those things as they come about and are taking place. You know, and so there are glimpses, there are little things that they would be able to see and say, oh, okay, this means that, if they were to look at it and see. Um, as this takes place and Jesus escapes, it's real telling what happens in verse 40, as we conclude, because he went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the earlier days. There he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John had performed, never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed. The Jordan is away from the Pharisees. He left Jerusalem. He's now at a place of safety. He's not going to be apprehended yet. But the time is coming. And in the early days, the place had a lot of significance to Jesus. This is where John was baptizing. This is where Jesus was baptized. This is where God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is where Jesus' ministry actually began. And it's interesting that Jesus went back to that place it's not uncommon to go back to those places that have meaning. Jacob went back to Bethel where he heard from God when things were going 
rough for him. God, you spoke to me here. And Jesus goes back to that place at the beginning of his ministry. And I, I think it's telling of his humanity that he went back to a place that had meaning to him. And the people that were there remembered John and said, John spoke about him, but he didn't tell us all. Jesus actually, you know, was greater than what John had said. You know, we heard John, but what this man is doing is even greater than we thought and what John said that he would be. He is the one person who never disappoints those who put their hope in him. And what a an emotional ride this is because we think of Jesus, well, he's God, he, he's God, he's God, but he is a man. And these people just tried to kill him and he tried as hard as he could to explain who he was and his argument was impeccable. It was as clear as could be and he did it as gracefully as a person could with the intention of reaching those people, but they would not see. If God cannot change the minds of some people, that should help us when we deal with other people. Have you ever been in with some and it's like, man, why won't they just change? Why can't they see God doesn't force people to change their minds. And he does everything that he can, but they still have that choice. You think you're better than God? You think your argument's going to be better than Jesus' argument? Sometimes there's only so much we can do. And that's a hard thing to take. That's frustrating. But it didn't stop Jesus from trying and he let them know as clearly as he could. And now he's withdrawn because he's coming to the end where he's going to fulfill his purpose, where he was set aside for this specific purpose. But he goes back to that place where everything began. And those people, they believed in him. And I think sometimes that's a comforting thing for us to go back to a place where at least we got some support because he was going to need it. Any other thoughts or things that stood out to you in this, these verses that we went over, just as we're talking about these things? Um, because of his boldness, because the Spirit was speaking through him, he was talking to the people about returning to the place of God. Um, they were looking for a Messiah. They wanted a Savior to come. They thought they were in a place where they needed the deliverance. And so there were a lot of people who came and presented themselves as messiahs or possibility that is also where most of the people would appeal though too that would try to um, start an insurrection it was among the masses because the leaders were in the pocket basically of you know the romans i mean they worked hand in hand with them not in a great relationship but they had that understanding and so whenever there are people who are oppressed, there is the potential to stir them up for a cause. And so there were a lot of people doing that. John was unique in how he did that because he wasn't calling them to himself. He was actually calling them to be ready for the Messiah, prepare the way. The one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. That was unique. Most everyone was calling them to himself. Follow me, follow me. And then when Jesus came, John was the one who prepared that way. And so it was kind of...
Yeah, they wanted someone they could hang their hope on. That's why they had such a hard time with Jesus, because they wanted to hang their hope on him, but it wasn't the way they thought. You know, and that's a difficult thing for us sometimes. We want to hang our hope on, on what God is doing, but sometimes we still get cancer. Sometimes, you know, the car still breaks down. It sounds so petty, but man, there have been times when my car broke down and it's like, God, why? You know, I mean, it's just like, if you loved me. And so, but a lot of times God doesn't work the way we want to. And we want to hang our hope on something that's going to deliver us. Any other thoughts? An intense passage in scripture, but let's pray. Lord, as we hear your plea for these people to believe on you for the things that you have done, Lord, how much more has that been extended? How much greater are the things that you have done now where you've given your life for us and you have conquered death by raising from the dead? You have done more than we could ever have imagined and your works proclaim your name and your majesty and your goodness and father we believe that you are the son of god we believe that you give life and that no one can take that life away that we will not perish because we have put our hope in you, the Son of God, and in what you have done for us. And Lord, we are grateful. And, and may we continue living lives that people can see you within, that the things we do would bring glory to you, that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, I am so thankful, even at this time during this Advent season, that our community has stepped up so much to be so generous to our community, to Haiti, and into so many areas, Lord. I am just so grateful. And Lord, pray that you would continue to use us to proclaim who you are. And we do ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.